Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Glug after glug. As little Johnny Haig wrestled to stop the 40-gallon steel drum from tipping over too far. The thick black gloop slowly slid into the festering sewer, hidden behind the locked back door in the basement of 79 Gloucester Road. As the smoking stew slopped up the rim, the acrid stench of acid stung the air, and the last of the shapeless fatty goo oozed down into the drain. Seeing no eyes, no hair and no skin, just a yellowy-green layer of ominous grease... This was all that remained of 33-year-old William Donald McSwan. And with the manhole cover replaced, Mac was gone. Being the first of six supposedly perfect murders, although this baby-faced psychopath would soon bloom into one of Britain's most infamous serial killers, in truth, as a murder virgin, Johnny had badly bungled his first slaying but somehow, with his deathly cherry popped, he had got away with it. But as a convicted fraudster, experienced forger, and a charming liar, the rest would be textbook. I had known McSwan for some time, and on seeing his mother and father, I explained that he had gone off to avoid his call-up. I wrote a number of letters, purporting to be from him, and posted them in Glasgow and Edinburgh, explaining the various details of the deposition of assets, which included a company, four homes and seven bank accounts, worth a quarter of a million pounds today. Last seen on Saturday the 9th of September 1944, as a shy, introverted recluse who hid in the shadows, Mac would be missed by nobody but his doting parents, who would swallow an entirely plausible story that their son, a shame-petty criminal, an absconded parolee, a conscription deserter, and a secret homosexual, with so much to lose, would flee the city, leaving his only friend in charge of his affairs. It seemed logical, so strung along by a sweet little man that Max saw as a sibling, and for fear of leading the police to their terrified child, his timid parents kept up the pretense that their boy was away on business. All the while, unwittingly aiding his murderer. And just as Johnny had done with his body, the cocky little killer would strip, 
dissolve and dispose of all of Mac's assets until not a single trace of him would ever be found. Only Mac didn't have a single penny or asset to his name. On Tuesday the 12th of September 1944, with the trifling little matter of a murder ticked off his to-do list, and Mac's sludgy remains slowly slipping its way towards one of several sewer plants across the city, after a decent night's nap, a solid breakfast, and another quick peek at a rather nifty, dark green Armstrong Sidley saloon he had his eye on in a nearby car showroom, Johnny set about cleaning the basement. There was no real rush though. Having rented the premises for three months, he had barely used a week. The landlord, Albert Marshall of Taylor Lovegrove & Co, was fully aware that any odd whiffs emanating from the floor below was due to Johnny undertaking experimental work on a government contract. And so with Mac only missing, the police wouldn't find this crime scene until five years later. Being a filthy basement soiled by several previous tenants, Johnny's cleanup would be at best a slapdash affair. He swept a bit, moved some stuff, and tipped a bucket of hot soapy water. But as he disliked hard work, he really wasn't all that bothered, especially now that Max Money would soon be burning a hole in his pocket. Desperate to get the job done, Johnny had a scrap man destroy the steel drum. Canning and Co. collected the three empty bottles, and seeing no reason to waste £7 a month on a perfectly serviceable but now seemingly pointless place for a murder, Johnny sublet the dingy basement to Ronald A. Fontana, a pleasant fellow who needed the storage space and was happy to be left a few odds and sods that Johnny really couldn't be bothered to bin. You know, stuff like pinball table legs, a length of lead pipe, and an old rusty axe. In an era where the best security was a signature, becoming Mac would be no biggie. Clutching the keys he had rifled from the corpse, Johnny helped himself to a few necessary knickknacks he had filched from Mac's ground floor flat at 22 Kempsford Gardens. A checkbook, a suitcase, some clothes, a nice pen, a few handwritten letters, a surprisingly good suit, and Mac's imperial typewriter. Not that this crime was as uncouth as a common burglary, or as petty as pilfering a fridge. Johnny wouldn't stoop so low as to half-inch a few cheap trinkets to pawn off for a pound. No, these personal possessions had purpose. That aside, the banks and lawyers would be a pushover. A few stuffy old men easily duped by a legal letter and an ID, signed in an identical scrawl. But for his superior scheme to truly work, Johnny needed Mac's parents to believe that their beloved son wasn't dead, but that he had voluntarily disappeared. And yet, with a little bit of effort, a large dollop of knowledge, a few days spare, and several pounds in his dwindling bank account, Donald and Amy McSwan swallowed his hole. And Johnny did most of it by post. 
But how did it work, and why? Well, the McSwans weren't all that different to his own parents, the Hagues. Born in a staunchly Presbyterian house in Menstry, a small rural village in the Scottish Lowlands snuck between Edinburgh and Glasgow, Donald McSwan was the second youngest of seven siblings, to Christina, a devoted housewife, and William, a bullman, who tested the qualities of whiskies at the local Glenochill distillery, a skilled profession for a strict teetotaler, who was always punctual, steady and sober. As with the Hagues, Donald's upbringing was dictated by two core beliefs, the family and serving God. So the rest of his early life, you can probably guess. Raised to be neat, clean and polite. Just like his son, Donald was a slightly undersized boy with a long weary face and a thin weedy frame. All barely held together by the expression of a haunted boy who fear had forced him to fold in on himself. As owing to an awkward birth, he walked with a stoop. And being just one in a family of nine, he never stood out, never felt loved, and always hid in the shadows. Surviving many brutally bitter winters in an austere Victorian era where only the rich had nest eggs to save them from the hard times ahead. Although the family were far from poor, their faith had taught them to spend frugally, live sparsely, waste nothing, and squirrel away whatever they could. Graduating from Menstry Public School aged 13, young McSwan, who was Donald to his mum, never Don, boy to his dad, never son, and to his friends, well, he didn't have any friends. Eager to appease his domineering father, who was never drunk, just disappointed, he earned a living at the distillery, but being swamped by three burly brothers, as a quiet bookish boy and the runt of the litter, who had learned to type and to take shorthand, instead of a tough sweaty manual job, Donald became a clerk. Throughout his life, Donald feared his father, and as an unmarried man, being denied his independence, although he had never set foot out of Menstry, let alone to the nearby cities of Edinburgh or Glasgow, in 1908, aged 30, holding everything he owned, Donald fled his home, his county and his country, travelling 475 miles south to Tunbridge Wells in Kent. Whatever had caused this rift is unknown. He missed his family, he grieved their deaths and he longed to be loved. But so deep was the pain that Donald never spoke or wrote to his parents ever again. That year, becoming the secretary at the Tunbridge Wells Spa Hotel, here he found work, a wage, a purpose, and a place to stay, as well as falling for the woman he would love until his dying day. Amy Beatrice Page was a waitress. Just like Donald, she was slight, quiet, and neat. A painfully shy Presbyterian, who spoke in a tiny whisper, stood with a timid stance, and always avoided eye contact. And yet with Donald as her manager, 
She found love, support, strength, and someone who made her feel safe. Donald and Amy were a very decent couple, moral but modest, fiercely loyal but easily forgettable. They never kissed in public, yet always held each other's hand. They never wore bright colours, except for a little flower he popped into her lapel. And as two shy recluses, they said and did very little, but were always happiest together in their own home, away from the dangers of strangers. In October 1910, Donald and Amy fell pregnant. It was a blissfully jubilant time for the two solitary lovers, who one day dreamed of becoming a family. But conceived by mistake and born out of wedlock, that month, Donald and Amy hastily became the Mugswans, having married in secret. On the 12th of May 1911, William Donald Mugswan was born, a small but healthy boy, who as their only child, was always loved and hugged, given everything and denied nothing, raised well but never spoilt. Being different, he was never forced to be anything but himself. And no matter what, the McSwans would do anything to protect their beloved boy, whether he was alive, dead, or allegedly in hiding. And yet, it was their lives which shaped the future of Mac McSwan, for better and for worse. In December 1915, with World War I raging, just as it would for his son quarter of a century later, 36-year-old Donald was conscripted to fight with the Royal Fusiliers on the French front line. As a small, weak, terrified pacifist with a stoop, whose religion forbade him to kill, and who cried every night that he didn't see his wife and baby, it's nothing short of a miracle that being little more than cannon fodder, Donald survived more than two years in the trenches. But in February 1918, his luck ran out. Being blasted by a mortar shell, his only physical injury was a small scar over his right eye. But the bloody war had taken its toll on Donald, and for the rest of his life, traumatised and plagued by night terrors, his right hand would perpetually shake with an involuntary tremor, a sad souvenir of the so-called Great War. Demobbed in July 1918, although he was hailed a hero and was given two medals, Donald swore that from this day onwards, he and his family would never be apart ever again. For the next 25 years, Donald, Amy and William McSwan spoke daily, were parted rarely and always wrote. But all that changed the day they met Johnny Haig. His subterfuge was simple. I explained to them that Mac had gone off to avoid his call-up. A dilemma Donald understood, which was why he supported his son's decision to do whatever he could do to avoid the draft. I wrote a number of letters purporting to be from him. The typed ones matched his typewriter. The signature was a perfect match. 
and the handwriting on the postcards mirrored his style, tone and grammar. And having posted them in Glasgow and Edinburgh, the two nearest cities to Donald's hometown, he explained the various details of the deposition of assets, which were to be left to his old pal Johnny. And because of that, the retired recluses were reassured by their boy's words that he was fine, well, and he would be home soon. Unaware that he was already dead and dissolved. As per his letters, on the 18th of September 1944, one week after the murder, Donald arrived at his son's office to inform the workshop's owner that Mac was out of town on business indefinitely. On the 5th of September, Donald paid his son's rent at 22 Kempsford Gardens. He ended the tenancy and removed his boy's belongings, noting the items that Mac must have taken with him. A checkbook, a suitcase, a nice pen, a handful of letters, his best suit and his imperial typewriter. The McSwans totally believed this logical ruse, that their beloved son had vanished by choice, was laying low, and for fear of alerting the police to his whereabouts, they never reported him missing. All the while, giving his killer ample time to destroy evidence, assume his identity, and steal his assets. Johnny's plan to murder for money was perfect. Sort of. The McSwans were so like the Hagues. Two devoted parents, neat, shy and reclusive, who would do anything to protect their boy. But as Mac's life collapsed, as much as he trusted his old pal, Johnny was too arrogant to see his fatal mistake. Mac liked Johnny as a brother, but he wasn't family. On the 5th of November 1943, just as ex-con Johnny was seeking his first victim having been released from Lincoln Prison, with the war draft looming closer, Mac did what many servicemen and civilians in wartime did and visited his bank, where he signed a power of attorney granting financial control of his affairs to the only people he trusted without question. His parents. Everything, from his bank accounts to his stocks, to his shares and his company. Everything but his homes. Again, Johnny had made another fatal mistake. Only this one was obvious. Just like his own parents, and to some extent Mac himself, Donald and Amy lived a very frugal life in a small, sparsely furnished top-floor flat in a less desirable part of town, rented weekly for just one pound. And as a solitary couple who didn't own a car, didn't socialise or go on holiday, they scraped by on a meagre pension of 22 shillings a week. To Johnny, they looked like they didn't have two farthings to rub together. But to Donald and Amy, they had everything. Their family, their faith and their fortune. Technically, Mac didn't have a single penny or asset to his name. But his family did. They always had. As their faith had taught them to live sparsely, waste nothing, 
and squirrel away their nest eggs. All three McSwans jointly owned and rented out the four homes in Beckenham, Wimbledon and Rains Park. So with total control over their son's assets, as much as Johnny's letters lied, it was all for nothing. Johnny's bank account was empty. Of his last £26, the basement had cost seven quid, the assets three, and with a few shillings for sundries like letterheads, business cards and his victim's last meal. In total, Mac's murder had cost him a tenner. And although, anticipating a rather wonderful windfall, he had slightly prematurely toasted his success with a teeny tiny spending spree of a few suits from Hawks of Savile Row, exquisite dindins at the Punch Bowl Club, good seats for classical concertos at the Albert Hall, a few big bets on the GGs and doggies at the White City Stadium, and several decent snoozes on soft linen sheets at the upmarket Onslow Court Hotel for the princely sum of £5 and one shilling a week, plus 10% service charge, obviously. But what irked him the most was the endless expense of chugging back and forth from London to Edinburgh to Glasgow, to post a few forged letters from the McSwan's dead son. Now a needless charade, which having cruelly teased him with a taste of the good life, and left a nifty little Armstrong Siddeley saloon stuck in the showroom. This whole grand plan had bled him dry. On the 12th of January 1945, aided by a stolen checkbook, a forged signature, and a devious little dollop of duping Mac's dad, Johnny siphoned off monies from one of Mac's accounts, a scam he would repeat on the 3rd of February and the 8th of March draining £210, almost £8,300 today. Admittedly, this pitiful little sum would only tide him over for a bit. But it wasn't a quarter of a million pounds, which was rightfully his. If only he had a way to make Donald and Amy McSwan vanish completely. I had known the McSwans for several years. I took them separately to the basement, disposing of them in the same way as their son. As before, he made it sound so simple, so precise, and so superior. But with no plan to become a serial killer, and believing that he was made for life, having offed a big mark like Mac, with all of the tools of his murderous deeds either destroyed or disposed of, Johnny would have to start from scratch. And although he was no longer a murder virgin, whereas the first of his six supposedly perfect murders was laughably inept, the second and third would be totally absurd. It's safe to say that little Johnny Haig hadn't learned his lessons. Having leased the basement at 79 Gloucester Road to Ronald Fontana, his perfect execution site had gone. So being unwilling to totally give it up, the two men agreed to split it. Ronald had the front room for his storage, and separated by a thin wall and a single door, 
Johnny had the back rooms for his murders. Still, at least he had sole access to the drain, so that was something. On the 10th of February, Johnny ordered a Winchester of hydrochloric and three 10-gallon carboys of sulfuric. But with his funds dry, the cheque bounced, so the usually swift delivery of the bottles were delayed by a further two weeks, and Johnny's company had a black mark placed against their name. Having scrapped the drum and needing two, Johnny borrowed a set of old, rusty and warped but hopefully watertight 40-gallon steel drums of a local builder's merchant. Having almost scorched his hands and suffocated on the fumes, this time he would wear protection, only being too cheap to buy, too lazy to borrow, and too superior to steal. He made do with an old tatty trench coat, a pair of leather gloves, and a makeshift gas mask made from cardboard and string. Again, having forgotten how impossible it was for a 150-pound man to decant a 165-pound carboy into a four-foot-high steel drum, which took two men to lift, once again, he opted to slop out the lethal liquid by bucket. And yes, as before, he failed to purchase possibly the most important thing, a murder weapon. So instead the same shoddy crap he left lying around would have to suffice. A pinball table leg, a length of lead pipe, or an old hand axe. With the preparations for the double murder of the McSwans done and dusted, now all Johnny had to do was to lure this frail old couple into his lair, just as he had done with her son. But once again, he had overlooked one small detail which would prove to be his biggest mistake. Mac McSwan liked Johnny. He trusted him. But Donald and Amy did not. Over the next four months, Johnny struggled to speak to, let alone see the McSwans. As two shy and reclusive homebodies, who rarely went out, invited nobody in, and mostly communicated by letter, sometimes by phone, and once in a blue moon, on the communal doorstep at 45 Claverton Street. Even if he could lure them out, which he couldn't, be invited in, which he wasn't, or break in, which he couldn't, to murder them in their own home. Without a car or any transport, how would he cart two dead bodies from a top-floor flat in Pimlico to his basement, three miles away in South Kensington. No, Johnny was well and truly stuck. And then, it got worse. Unable to afford the extortionate train fare to Scotland, Johnny had to stop writing the letters. When Ronald Fontana moved out, for safety's sake, Johnny had to use his last penny to take up the full lease on the basement. And being broke, like a hobo with nowhere to go, he was forced to bunk down in the dark, dingy basement, asleep on an old mattress, surrounded by two steel drums gathering dust. And then it got even worse. 
On Monday, the 30th of April, 1945, with Hitler dead, the war over, and conscription to be abolished, as people cheered in the streets that their loved ones would soon be coming home, as Mac had been missing for nine months and silent for three, the McSwans began to ask the question: Where was our boy? And then, his whole plan collapsed. On Wednesday, the sixth of June, Albert Marshall, a state agent at Taylor Lovegrove and Co., one floor above, gave Johnny one month's notice to vacate the basement. With no money left, no time to waste, and no other options, it was now or never. But how do you lure two shy recluses out of their home? On the evening of Monday, the second of July, nineteen forty-five, I separately took to the basement the father Donald and the mother Amy, disposing of them in exactly the same way as their son. As a frail elderly couple, one a petite lady with a tiny whisper, a timid stance, and a tiny flower in her lapel, and the other an awkward battle-scarred veteran with a haunted face, a painful stoop. And a perpetually trembling hand were easy kills. Coshed, hogtied, and drowned in sulfuric acid, as the twin drums shook, boiled, and the dirty fizzing stew stripped their hands, feet, and faces to the bone. Johnny stirred the deathly brew, his trench coat, leather gloves, and makeshift gas mask doing the job. And although we know that they both died that day. It's still uncertain whether they were dead, alive, or dying. As side by side, he dissolved their bodies in acid. But being an uncaring sort of chap, it's possible. Two days later, all that remained was a black acrid gloop. Glug after glug, as little Johnny Haig wrestled to stop the steel drums from tipping over too far. And the hot, gooey residue of the elderly recluses slid into the dark, festering sewer behind the locked black door in the basement of Seventy-Nine Gloucester Road. After nine months of patiently waiting, praying, and hoping, finally, Donald and Amy McSwan were reunited with their boy. As per his tenancy, on the sixth of July, nineteen forty-five, Johnny vacated the premises. He had the empty carboys collected, and should they ever be needed, the drums relocated to Alan Stevens' yard at Number Two Leopold Road. Eleven days later, rightly assuming the banks and lawyers to be a pushover, Turner McFarlane Macintosh and Co., a firm of Glasgow solicitors. Were asked to draw up a power of attorney for William Donald McSwan, Donald McSwan, and Amy Beatrice McSwan, assigning full control of their assets to John George Hague. ID was produced, all three signatures matched, and having checked the documents, the solicitor would and did confirm that they were legal, because in his eyes, they were. Selling off the business. 
their homes, and all stocks, savings, shares and war bonds. In total, from these three murders, Johnny's pocket would be flush with enough cash to last a lifetime. With his bank balance brimming, his belly full of fine foods, and his suits stylish once again, as a dapper, sophisticated bachelor who was finally living the life that he deserved and had earned, Johnny became a permanent resident in room 404 of the exclusive Onslow Court Hotel, outside of which he had parked his brand new, rather nifty, dark green Armstrong Sidley Saloon. And now, his dream was complete. Johnny Haig was a wealthy middle-class man, living a lavish life in an affluent part of town. Yes, to get there, he had slaughtered three people, plundered their assets, dissolved their corpses, and poured their sludge down into the sewer. But as no one had reported them missing, where was the problem? In the end, it took very little effort to lure the McSwans into his lair. In fact, it was simple. Johnny had made many mistakes in his first three murders, the biggest being to assume that he knew his victims better than they knew themselves. And although the Hagues were very similar to the McSwans, by watching them, Johnny knew that they all had one fatal flaw, which he did not. Love. As two doting parents who would do anything to protect their boy, having swallowed an entirely plausible story that their only son, a shamed petty criminal, a conscription deserter, and a secret homosexual, was missing. After three months of silence, when Johnny showed them proof of life in the basement of 79 Gloucester Road, they only saw what they wanted to see. The handwriting was a match, the date was recent, the postmark was local, and the loving words on the postcard reassured his worried parents that their boy was fine, well, and he would be home soon. By the summer of 1945, having made enough money to last a lifetime, the killing spree of John George Haig, one of Britain's most infamous serial killers, should have come to an end. But it didn't. Friends, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. That was part three of Sulfuric, the true story of John George Haig, with the fourth part of six continuing next week. A big thank you to my new Patreon supporters, who are Tracy Lawrence, Cindy Ortiz, Kim Cook, Stephanie Enns, and Jennifer Venn. With a special thank you to Kaz Every and Jason Abercrombie, the wonderful admins on the Murder Mile discussion group on Facebook. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. Hey. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. God. <coughs> oh, dear. Uh, hello everyone, welcome to uh, Extra Mile. Oh dear God! Uh, well, as you can hear, uh, I got the uh, the winter bug is out. The winter bug is here. The bloody horrible thing. Uh, I was out yesterday. I did. I, I even though I was ill, I still I had a private tour to do, so I did a tour. I've got another one today. What's today? Today is not not quite December, so it's November. Oh, I think it's 20, 20, oh, it's 24th today. It's the day after Dennis Nielsen's birthday, 24th of November this morning. So I've woken up really early this morning to try and get this record done because I'm about two days behind now. Uh, and, uh, yeah, the uh, cold started creeping in on Friday. And then, oh, yesterday it was quite bad. And today, oh. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and have a lem sip. That's why this record sounded a little bit throaty. If you listen to the others... When you get to the Omnibus edition and you put on episode 3, you go, oh, it sounds weird. Uh, yeah, my voice has gone really throaty today. So, uh, put on some hot water, make some lemp sip. Uh, that should do. Oh, so yeah, no cup of tea today. and Just lemp sip and all stuff like that. Um, so hopefully that record was okay. I spent all my time basically going every se- every sentence, blowing my nose and coughing and spluttering. Oh, I hope it sounds okay. Oh, I just couldn't. I I thought to myself, I can't afford to wait any longer because otherwise the episodes will be delayed. And it doesn't sound too bad. It just sounds throaty. Oh, so how are you all? You're good. I can't hear you. Are you all good? Yay! Uh, I've just normally I write some notes on here of things that I must remember to say, but I haven't written anything today. I was just I was in such a rush to get stuff done to get this episode finished because I was going to record yesterday but then I realized the episode wasn't quite right and I had to go go through it and write it 
through it again to make sure because there are bits and pieces that I was uncertain about. Uh, so what's that? So uh, diet still going well? Uh, what this must be like week nine now. I have had some cakes. I'm trying to introduce some cakes back into the system. Uh, had a little bit of chocolate, but not too much. I I I, I went up to see my gran up in Scotland the other day. Uh, uh, she, I mean, I, 800 mile round trip. She was fast asleep. I woke. Uh, she woke up. She looked at me. She went straight back to sleep. She didn't even recognise me or chocolate. But anyway, so I had, I had a, tw a twirl in my pocket. So I had a, a bit of twirl. It was fine. When you go on a diet, I always keep thinking to myself, oh, it'll be exciting. Do you know, when you go back, you, you, you have all the things that you miss and you enjoy them. And it's just, every time I try something that I haven't had in a while, I don't, it's not as exciting as I remember, like chocolate or cake. <sighs> yeah, I had, I had like some burgers yesterday because I thought, let's put some red meat back in my system. And it was fine. It was fine. But it was, uh, all the while I kept thinking, mm, it'd be nice to have some leeks and some garlic. I'm quite enjoying the nice, even though it's not really diet food, it's kind of just, just good, decent food that is not the processed shit. Uh, I hate processed shit, I really don't like that stuff. I hate anything that has sauce with it. Do you know, when you, if you buy something that's already got sauce with it, I always think it's a bad idea, because it's like, it's like saying, here you go, here's one flavour. That's why I don't get it. It's like, do you know, loads of meals, like pasta meals, it's like, there you go, it's all covered in a, a tomato sauce. Yeah? What else? Whereas with my meals, because they're all separate, like you've got your fish and you've got your leeks with your garlic and you've got your olives there and you've got your feta cheese there and the eggs there and rye bread there and it's all you've got all your different flavours in different parts of the plate and I quite like that. Which is why I quite like, oh, oh, maybe I'll have a, treat myself to a Sunday roast today. Oh, that'd be nice. Oh, that'd be nice. Yeah, that's, I think that's, oh. I think I'm gonna have it. No, that's it. Decide. I'm, I'm gonna treat myself to a Sunday roast. I earned some good money yesterday doing a private tour for uh, Heather. It was for Heather uh, and Heather's mum and family. Uh, hopefully, I've converted them into uh, Murder Mile listeners. So maybe, maybe they're listening to this episode. So that was very good. Uh, hope the tour went well for them. They were really good. They were really into their true crime. They didn't know about Murder Mile. But uh, they're into true crime, and that was good fun, so I was able to chat to them about different murders, and I think two of them were ex-police as well, which is always useful. So we had a bit of a giggle, we had a laugh, uh, even though I was very, very ill and very, very drugged up. Oh, I literally, I, I, all the, on my way there, I was thinking, oh, oh, I hope they listen to the podcast, because if they listen to the podcast, what I can do is say, let's not do a regular murder mile, let's just do a... Uh, let me show you around all the sites and I'll do a kind of off-the-cuff uh, tour, which is what I'm planning to do anyway soon, is kind of an off-the-tuff, off-the-off-the-tuff, off-the-hoof tour of Murder Mile. So if you've been on the regular tour, it's 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 structured and it's scripted, whereas what I want to do is something a little bit more free-flowing. So I was planning to do that, but because they'd never heard of Murder Mile before, and I was like, ah, oh, bollocks, I'll have to do the the full tour. But because they were good fun. They know about their true crime, and you know we were able we were able to kind of improvise around it, and we had a lot more fun. So uh, yeah, it was good. It lasted lasted three just over three hours instead of the normal two hours, but it was good fun. We enjoyed it, so that was good. Oh, <coughs> I've had so many lemsips. Oh, I've got another tour to do in a couple of hours. Actually, no, I got what I've got to do now. I'm going to get on my bike. 
I've got a cycle all the way down to Pimlico to go to 45 Claverton Street to film the location for there. And then, even though I've already filmed uh, uh, the front of 79 Gloucester Road, it was when writing these episodes, because I filmed these locations earlier on, I realised now that I need to go back and fil- film what it looks like in Stanhope Mews West behind 79 Gloucester Road, where the, where the murder lo- first murder location was. Uh, so I need, need to go there. Uh, and film the back because I think that would be quite interesting uh, so I need to do that one and I'm going to go and film uh, Onslow Court which comes into its own in the later episodes if you've listened to all three so far you'll notice that I mean even if you know the case you'll notice that I've kind of I've been drip feeding you bits of information I've I've told you the stories but I've drip fed you information you, you probably won't have noticed it hopefully but I've drip fed you little pieces of information about about places which will crop up later on so later on you'll go, ah, oh, that makes sense. Okay, that's in there now. Or, or do you know, it won't come as a shock. Do you know, there's names in there that you've already heard already. So, uh, so uh, I'm covering all my bases uh, on this. Uh, yeah, Whew, I'm gonna have to sit down and really work out how to write eps four, five, and six tomorrow. I've got them all. I've got all the the research there, and it's done. I put them in an order, but now I just need to. Now I've done the first three. Now I need to work out how to do the next six. Whew, but I enjoyed that one. I thought that was quite. Interesting episode doing the Donald and Amy Rick Swan. Uh, it's it's a hard one to write. There's n- there's no photo of Donald, uh, the father. Uh, I've put some photos online of Amy. Uh, there's very little about Amy's life. She's I mean she's very quiet and she kept to herself and uh, there's very few details about it. So um, uh, do you know there's uh, I mean we'll, we'll mention some of this very shortly. So. Uh, I tell you what, let's get into that now, because I, I can't think. I can't think what I'm meant to be doing. I'm all over the shop today. Uh, so, right. Uh, where were we? Where were we? Uh, okay, removal of the drums. Um, as mentioned in there, see, this is the thing with uh, with Haig, same as with Christie as well. He's detailed with some things, but vague with other things. There's a real kind of mishmash of what they choose to want to want to, which is why I always always say on things, you know, um, just because a serial killer says something or a murderer says something doesn't mean it's fact. You don't have to take it as gospel. If anything, I would not take it as gospel at all uh, because they are notoriously liars. That's why they end up in the, the, the you know, they, they, they end up doing crime. They're liars. They don't know how to live a normal life so you know and especially with people like Haig and Christie and Blackout Ripper it's all about themselves they're all very self-centered they're all liars by trade so you know anything they say is complete bullshit so um but with all of them it, it all, all is very vague it's like they will say one thing they will contradict it elsewhere you know you can't really trust them um so w- many of the details in these episodes are quite vague in places like how I was do I was going to do a big section on this in the uh, the podcast, but I re- cut it out when I was writing about how do they get um, Donald and Amy McSwan from uh, the top floor flat at forty five Claverton Street to his uh, dingy basement in Pimlico. Now it's a nice flat though, and a relatively nice flat, not posh, but it was you know, it was nice, but it was secure. Uh, the basement in south kensington 79 gloucester road uh the front entrance i'll, sh- I'll, I'll i can't show you I'll, I'll probably show you a picture on social media i can't put it on my website because it's copywritten 
patron uh, subscribers will see a picture of it. The front entrance to it was was quite nice. It looked quite, it looked relatively decent, but it was a basement and it was underneath shops. Uh, back entrance not so nice. So it's kind of hard. It's easier. It was easier, obviously, to lure William in the son because the son was going there for business purposes. He was like, "Oh, this is your, but your uh, Johnny. This is your new business. This is Union Group Engineering. That's very exciting. I'll come and see this." So, th- so even though this was never stated why he was going there, that would be the reason why he was going there. Um, the parents harder to lure them in, harder harder to get them out of the house. They didn't really leave the house much. They. They would go and collect the rent of the properties they went to, but they they didn't go out anywhere. They didn't trust strangers, even though they knew Johnny, you know. Uh, (coughs) He was not someone who was high on their list of people they trusted. Yes, they invited him round for tea, but don't forget that was with their son. So with their son there, you know, they trust their son, their son's instincts. But um, there was never a point where they would go, all right, mate, come on round, have have a couple of beers round our flat. It was like... You know, they didn't trust him at all uh so only they would c- communicate with him by letter or sometimes by phone or as mentioned uh if he did call um they would have to come down from the top floor flat to the communal uh doorstep at the bottom next to the landlady and the other tenants one of whom was her daughter uh, and they would they would talk to him on the doorstep but never invite him up so they were quite a cautious couple so how do you get them from claverdon street to there that's 2.8 miles they didn't have a car he didn't have a car <sighs> do you know uh he couldn't get in as mentioned uh <coughs> he couldn't break in he couldn't get any keys he, he wasn't a burglar 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 so yeah i was going to put do more about this but it, it was just like uh i decided to strip it out a little bit uh anyway so uh so yeah there are details that are missing so where where they got the drum where he got those two drums from we don't know he didn't mention about that basically he said he asked around uh obviously he destroyed he found the first steel drum in the churchyard of st stephen's it was a bit worn out uh second time he he didn't really find any that he could find he needed two he needed some good ones so he asked around in the local pubs he asked uh ronald fontana um uh, apparently he got them from a local build, builders merchant he said he borrowed well he said he traded but he didn't say what he traded them with uh so uh that's all we really know about that but um uh so the drums yeah uh when johnny Hagen moved out of the basement obviously he'd moved out on the 6th of july as per the contract albert marshall albert c marshall of the uh, of Taylor Lovegrove noticed two large 40 gallon drums uh, between the middle room and the way out to the muse at the back uh, he wrote to John George Haig on the second oh god burpees oh it's all this it's all this lemsip it's not good for my hernia oh uh, he wrote to John George Haig on the 2nd of August asking him to remove them uh, Johnny asked Albert to send a letter to the Union Tool and Gauge Company, which was uh, Alan Stevens' company, to have them removed. Uh, Alan, who, of course, is uh, Barbara's father. Barbara might possibly pop up later on, I haven't decided. Uh, And had them shipped to Crawley, um, where they were placed in the... uh, uh, in their yard and number two Leopold Road, which was basically the storeroom that um uh Johnny had helped kind of clean up uh in between his times during prison. 
The drums were collected by Francis Ridley, a lovely lorry driver, and delivered that day. Um, obviously, they could have been scrapped, but, you know, um, they didn't know whether they'd need them again or whether they'd be of any use to anyone. Uh, I really don't think at this point that Haig is thinking about extra murders. Uh, I think he was just like, could be useful. Do you know, maybe maybe could sell them or do you know what may or maybe who knows i mean he, he doesn't discuss this so maybe who knows maybe he kind of looked at them and thought maybe there might be more murders i don't know maybe i might need to do this again so uh who knows uh as always yet the carboys were collected uh three carboys this time 365 pound carboys were collected all empty or as near as empty uh on the 10th of july uh, I'll probably mention this next time. I don't think I don't think I put this in the episode this time. Um, the axe that was there. I'll probably mention this next time. I think I'll put it in the next episode. Um, the axe that was there, the wooden axe. Now, whether this was the murder weapon or not, or whether it was the lead pipe, or whether it was one of the the legs of the pinball table. Um, uh, Johnny Haig bequeathed. Uh, the axe to Mr. Albert Marshall, who who was the landlord there. So he had he had the axe. So whether that was a murder weapon or what, not, we don't know. Um, the the basement was small, um, and it had a bit of a toxic smell to it. But because he'd explained that he was burning, uh, burning, he was uh, doing experiments. He he said it was to do with plastics. Um, that was kind of accepted. They they opened up the windows and they opened up the doors and aired it out, and it was fine. What else we got? Um, probably put this into next week's episode as well. So obviously he took, he not only took their ID, he took all the registration, national registration identity cards of Donald McSwan, William Donald McSwan, and Amy. Uh, uh, f- her full name was Amy Beatrice Sarah McSwan. Uh, he also took all of their ration books as well. So. Um, Quite a petty man, even though he he'd nicked. What did I say it was? It was just over two hundred thousand pounds today, which I know it doesn't sound a lot, but the equivalent back then it's it's like it's hard to explain. The the like back then you could buy a house for what was the equivalent of seventeen thousand pounds. Like if you're in London now, you'd be lucky if you could buy a flat for two hundred and fifty thousand pounds, but you know, back then, the equivalent of seventeen thousand pounds. So, uh, you know, the cost of things cost of things were a, a lot cheaper back then. Uh, obviously, your money went up a lot further. So, uh, so even though it doesn't two hundred thousand pounds, you'd think to yourself, well, that that probably wouldn't last him a long time. That'll probably last him like a year or two. Do you know, or they'll probably last most people a year or two. But do you know, back then, that was, that was a sizable chunk of money. Uh, <coughs> oh dear. Uh, uh, so as mentioned on the 17th of July 1945 John Turner McFarlane solicitor at Turner McFarlane Macintosh and Co at 24 Blythewood Square in Glasgow Glasgow uh, received a call from uh, supposedly from William Donald McSwan obviously this was John George Haig asking him to draw up a power of attorney uh, and he asked for an appointment uh, the man arrived, claimed to be William Donald McSwan. Obviously, he had his ID, perfect signature. It wasn't a photo ID because this was in the era before. <coughs> well, in, <coughs> obviously, you'd have photos in passports and things like that. But um, uh, you could have a photo ID, but they'd be quite 
easy to do because it's basically just a picture and you glue it in not really that difficult but uh they use signatures uh, to prove ID. Uh, the man arrived, wanted to uh, create a, a power of attorney of William Donald McSwan in favour of John George Haig. It was dated 18th of July 1945. Uh, the work was done that day. It was completed the next day. Uh, it was lodged at the central office of the High Court. Uh, John George Haig admitted that he wrote all the signatures himself. Uh, ba -dum -ba -dum -ba -dum. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sorry, I was just reading ahead. Uh, yep, signatures were a match. ID was a match. Uh, so no real problem there. Uh, the document let John George Haig accept the transfer of any stocks, funds, shares, annuities, and other securities which shall or may at any time hereafter be transferred to me, John George Haig to take possession of my freehold premises um nine grand drive these are the houses uh 106 kenilworth drive 15 wimborne way and 122 churchfields road um and obviously as mentioned uh, the solicitor looked at these documents and they all seemed fine um these were drafted on uh william donald swan's imperial typewriter so he actually used one of his victim typewriter to to draft these documents um they're quite simple documents he'd, he'd seen them many times before as was mentioned so we did all this in episode one where he'd, he'd, he already knew a, a lot about law he'd got access to legal papers he'd got access to power of attorneys he'd looked to them they're 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 all pretty much much of a much muchness really so uh no real difference there um when he was finally arrested uh, at Brixton Prison, uh, he was shown these documents uh, by Chief Inspector Guy Mahon, who we've heard about before on the Blackout Ripper. Uh, he was shown the forged power of attorney, and he said, "Yes, I signed McSwan's name. I, I remember I made made. I didn't make a good job of the last signature. Instead of Donald, I wrote Ponald. Um, I think if you go on my um, my website, it's on there uh, on the blog." It doesn't hugely look like Ponald, but it looks it looks like Donald, but the 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 swirl is a little bit higher than it should be. But apart from that, um, but there, actually going through this though, there was even though they had lots of houses and all that, um, uh, William, uh, sorry, Donald and Amy McSwan actually had a lot more money that was hidden away. Um, they had a lot of investments. So I was kind of looking at like where all their funds were. They had a lot of bank accounts as well, but also they had a hell of a lot of investments. They had a lot of war bonds and savings and stocks and shares. So uh, in total, in addition to uh, their homes that were on there and uh, William Donald McSwan's business that was there and his savings, on top of that was another at least another £100,000 in today's value. Uh, just on... Um, Donald's and Amy McSwan's bonds and shares they had a lot of war bonds so uh, yeah they were oh I think I might have it all here uh, so yeah so uh, so he made the equivalent of uh, from these three murders uh, £214,000 £548 which uh, at the time was the equivalent of 1,000 people's average annual salary 
So that's that's a lot of money. So that so that really puts it into perspective how much. You know, Sorry, that's disgusting. How much money he had actually nicked. That's a lot of money. Uh, he also said, I have since got additional ration... I have since got additional ration books by producing the identity cards in the usual way. Uh, which he did. Which is kind of a bit mean in a way. You know, he's, he's nicked all of their money and their possessions and their assets and all things like that. And then he also goes and gets their ration books. He's like, yeah, what the hell. Uh, assets of... Um, the McSwans, obviously, they've got uh, the house in Beckenham. Uh, I won't. Go, I'm gonna not give away too much on here because I'm probably gonna. <coughs> I'm gonna open up with the deposition of assets in the uh, start of the next episode because I think there's some interesting things to say there. But um, yeah, I don't want to give too much away. Uh, so yeah, no, they had uh, post office savings accounts. They had uh, war defence bonds. Uh, what else do they have? There's quite a few bank accounts. So I'm just trawling through their bank accounts. Not literally trawling through their bank accounts. Just having a look at what they've got. Uh, Hang on. Uh, Obviously, obviously, should just mention that Max uh, Automatics. Don't don't forget, this has already been sold. So when I say that his business had been sold, that's that's uh, McSwan Engineering because Max Automatics has already gone the pinball business. Ah, what else we got? Ah, see, there's things here that I just oh. See, I put it into extra mile thinking I might talk about this later on, but I really, I don't know what I'm how I'm I know how I'm going to open up at four, but I don't want to give too much away just in case. Um, maybe, maybe some of these might go into extra mile next week. That's, that's the danger of doing multi-part series is, is I'm constantly going between all three, all six episodes, all the research on all six and double checking everything. And then, and then going, oh, right. What have I said there? Right. I can need to say that that week, but I need to make sure I don't say that this week. And then that, okay, that's was said in week one. So I need to bring that book up here. Oh. The, these really are complicated they, you're probably enjoying them and going oh this sounds nice I'm enjoying these these are real real difficult to write they take they take twice as long to write as any other episodes uh, but I'm enjoying it I'm enjoying doing it as uh, uh, the Johnny I think it's different because we haven't we haven't really played the character the, the, the villain before and it's you know, all this is from the villain's perspective so uh yeah, not that I'm trying to make him sympathetic. He's he's far from sympathetic. He's a bit of a prick, but I think that's an interesting way to do it. Uh, so yeah, second of August, nineteen forty-five. So sure, like three weeks after the murders, um, uh, he went to uh, a garage in South Kensington. It doesn't say where it was, uh, and he bought the dark green Armstrong Sidley Saloon. <laughs> oh, it's the car you'd always wanted. And finally, it was his. Don't forget, he he was a big lover of cars. We mentioned this in episode one. He had three before, got sent to prison. They all got um, taken away from him. Um, he had already spent a little while in uh, the Onslow Court Hotel, just around the corner. He'd spent a couple of nights there every so often. But it's quite expensive, obviously. As mentioned, it's uh, uh, just over £5 a week to stay there. Mm, my notes here say five pounds fifteen shillings. I thought it was five pounds one shilling. <gasps> well, sure. 
I'm not, I'm not going to bother to double check that. I can't be asked. Uh, yeah, it's one single furnished room. Uh, obviously, he couldn't afford to live there when everything went tits up. And then he had to move into the basement. And he was living in the basement. And the basement obviously didn't have a bed. He didn't have a kitchen. It was grotty. It was horrible. It was someone had been murdered there. Um, but finally, he moved back into the Onslow Court Hotel. I'll do a video of that later on when I get there. So you can see what it looks like. It hasn't changed. It's still the same. Uh, and this this kind of uh, location comes into its prominence then. Oh, laboratory examination. Uh, no, let's not do anything there. No, let's save that bit. So there's bits. Oh, there's more bits that I can probably tell you, but I see. I, I don't know how what I'm going to open with next week. Uh, yeah. Let me uh, uh, let me not add. I'm not going to add those. I'm not going to tell you about those. Only because I just don't want to ruin it. Just in case next week I go, oh, this is interesting, and I put it into the episode, and then all of a sudden I realise that, and then I have to come back and edit out extra mile, which I don't like doing. So I think that might be it. That might be it for the week. Yeah, you don't want too much extra mile. You can have too much of a bad thing. There's Coot outside. Coot has been a I mean, this is when I woke up at five to start recording because I've got to do the tour and I've got to get on my bike and do that. And I thought, oh, great. It's before dawn, so the birds won't be awake. And, do you know, uh, 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 the muggers don't wake up until like late afternoon. The muggers around here are thick as shit. They really are. I mean, I'm in an area where there's a lot of muggings going on. God, they're thick as shit. I know to be a mugger you don't need special skills, but they are thick as shit. It's like they walk, they, this is them, they walk along the streets. I'm in East London at the moment, they walk along the streets. They're normally in groups of between four or or sometimes as many as 15. They're all wearing black. They're all got ski masks on. Okay, none of them go ski, are going skiing. They don't have any ski poles with them. They don't have their skis with them, right? So they're really obvious. They're... <laughs> the ones going past had like a little sound block with them so they were playing some music while they were walking along everyone around here knows them because it's the same it's the same group who do all the muggings all the time they're really obvious and it's just like you thickest pieces of shit in the world it's like firstly we all know that you're the mur you're you're the muggers secondly you're wearing ski masks which is really ridiculous it, you know, it makes you seem more obvious you got your music blaring i yeah, <laughs> they i I was cycling along one of the routes the other way, the other day and uh, drifting down, I could smell the fog of cannabis. I was like, oh, the muggers are up there. I could smell them before I could see them. They really are that stupid. They're, they're, they, they have no idea what they're doing. They're just so vague. And also, because they're in groups, like they'll steal someone's someone's bag, go and get their credit card, and then they go to the bank. And let's say, let's say maximum they get at the maximum, which is 300 quid, okay? 300 quid let's say there's a group of them that's 15 300 divided by 15 i know they probably haven't passed gcse maths but there's 20 quid each it's 20 quid each even if it's only two of them that's still only 150 quid that's no, in today not really much do you really want to go to prison uh, and probably be charged with not just not just mugging but you know if you're carrying a knife that 10 years 10 10 years for carrying a knife and then that's classified as armed robbery as well 150 quid get a job mate go and stack some shelves it's like thick as 
thick as pig shit. Ah, uh, anyway. That's me done, I think. Uh, I um, I don't think I'm, I'm going I'm to have a stab at editing this today. I'm going to check that the sound was okay. And then we're done. Uh, and then I'm going to do my tour and then come back and probably die. So uh, that was fun. Hope you enjoyed that. I'll catch you all soon. Uh, uh, best wishes. Uh, lots of love. Tatty bye. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.